Well, amen. It's been wonderful this morning, and thank all of you who participated in this morning. Before I get started, I want to speak just a minute on the subject of patriotism. I have a dear friend. Uh, we went to the same seminary, and uh, I love this man, and he is also a pastor, but we don't see eye to eye on everything. And the discussion arose about 4th of July services. He and I talked about it, and he said, listen, he said, a 4th of July service has no place in the house of God. He said, doing pledges and singing anthems and things like that, he said, it's just stoking idolatry within the church. He said, church is the place where we worship God and God alone, not where we worship country. I listened to him and I just said, called him my name and I just said, hey, you know, I agree church is where we worship God and God alone. I said, but can it not also be a place where we give gratitude to God for what he's done? For the Christian, we don't worship our country. We don't worship the state. We don't worship our history. We don't bow the knee to our forefathers. We bow our knee to God and God alone. But let us never fail to give thanks for all that God has done. If you read the Psalms, at least, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's got to at least be at least 20% of the Psalms are Zionistic in this sense, that it celebrates the nation of Israel there within the Old Testament, their victories in battle, their history, all of these things. Are they worshiping their state? Are they worshiping their country? Of course not. They're celebrating the providence of God and His good hand in providing for them. So just as a reminder today, it is appropriate for us to give thanks and show gratitude for all that the Lord has done. We can focus on the flaws of our forefathers or we can stand on their faith and give thanks for what God has done. And I hope that you will join me in giving thanks to God. When you read Romans 1, one of the failures with a nation and a people when they are under God's judgment is specifically in verse 21 of Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So as Christian Christian people, We are to give thanks and show gratitude to God in all things. And the love of our country should not be exempt from that. I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. Gotcha. I faked you out. So turn to the Gospel of John. Not quite. Turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. We concluded John Last week, after two and a half years of being in the book, and I miss it already. But uh, we're going to talk this morning about the sacred image. The sacred image. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Our main statement is this, the image of God makes human life sacred. How many of you have heard this phrase, the sanctity of life? 
How many of you have heard that phrase before? The sanctity of life. What does it mean? We talk about it all the time. What is the sanctity of life? Well, sanctity is just sacredness. What makes life so sacred? Well, it depends on your worldview. If you have a Darwinistic, materialistic worldview, an atheistic worldview, or an agnostic worldview, then you believe that we're just a conglomeration of cells that have been fixated together through natural processes, through millions and billions of years of evolution, then really there's not a lot of difference between me and this desk right here, or me and the bullfrog that I saw the other night in the yard. There's not a whole lot of difference between me and my puppy dog in my backyard if all we are is a conglomeration of cells what makes me any different than any other animal or plant life for that matter in the world that's an atheistic materialistic worldview of just seeing all life is essentially the same life is life because it all arose from the same place which was in a sense the 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 puddle of the from the the past that formed together and through natural selection and um, all of those things over time produce life as we know it today. And there are many people who hold that view. I was a youth minister for seven years before I became a pastor. And I loved youth ministry, loved high school, really loved working with middle school students. Um, but anyway, I did something frequently with my students and it was a low ropes course. There's such a thing as high ropes, and high ropes are exactly that. They're up in the trees and suspended from towers, and you're wearing harnesses. But low ropes, are, they're, they're down on the ground. Everything is, is team-building opportunities. And I love doing ro- low ropes because it's been my experience that teenagers don't know how to get along with each other. And so, I mean, it's just the truth. It's just humanity. And low ropes was an opportunity for some team-building. Well... It was in East Tennessee, and we went to this low ropes course at a place called Maryville College, and uh, one of the students was working there in the summer and was going to be our guide. And uh, we got there, and I have these middle school students with me, and we're all excited and stuff like that, and there's middle school boys. And um, Anyway, the instructor was a lady, and she looked at us. She said, now, we need to understand, boys, um, this is a sanctuary of life here in this forest. And all creatures are to be treated the same. We will honor all life equally. So stay on the path. Don't step on the plants. Leave everything it is. We will honor life as a fellow member of this circle of life. I was thinking, oh boy, this is... Anyway, we were walking down the path to get to the low ropes course, and there was this intern I had that worked underneath me. I was discipling him, and he was in college, and he was one of the part-time employees in the youth ministry, and a wasp, or if you're from where I'm from, you would call it a wasper, but a wasp landed on the path. And my intern named Daniel, he looked at it and he saw, (gasps) a wasp! (laughs) That girl turned around and looked at him and said, murderer. (laughs) That is a true story. Which I had to have a talk with Daniel. I said, 
that wasn't murder, but we need to honor her wishes because she's the boss, okay? But why did she say that? Because she sees all of life as essentially the same. That's an atheistic, agnostic, or materialistic worldview. Now, I have a different worldview. My worldview is informed by the Scripture. I believe the Bible to be the Word of God and that God has given it to us. And that worldview says that while all of life is from one, the God of life, human life is different because God has placed His image on human life. And that's what I want to talk about today. Let's look in the scripture in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man here it is in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them and god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want to speak to you this morning about the image of God. Principle number one, if you're following along, is this. The image of God was created directly by God. The image of God was created directly by God. Look down in verse 27. So God created man in his own image whatever the image of God is and we'll talk about that in a few minutes but whatever it is it was created directly by God the image is not something we bear because we happen to be the most advanced life there is on planet earth the image of God is something that was created it's something that is unique it's not something that we achieved after millions and billions of years of evolution it was something that was gifted to us and placed upon us at creation so notice several things in the text you've heard me talk about this before notice the announcement to the heavenly court does not allow for their creative participation i want you to look back in verse number 26 it says then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness question who's the let us now if you attended our sunday evening study a few years ago unseen things we talked about this Many Christian commentators just go straight to, well, this is talking about the Trinity here. Um, of course, we know that the Trinity is true, and it is true that God is one and three, three and one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and this is just the Trinity. We know that that's the Trinity. The only problem with that is that Moses wrote this book, and he wrote it to ancient Israelites, and ancient Israelites did not understand the Trinity, and that's abundantly clear in the New Testament, as they or had they did not understand that yet. That's something that came later. In fact, the Jews in the Book of Acts didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit when they became Christians. When remember, Paul says, "If you received the Holy Spirit," they said, "We don't even know He exists." Well, how do they not know He exists if the Trinity has always been readily available to be seen 
all the way back in Genesis. Frankly, uh, critical Old Testament scholarship points in a different direction. This is more likely an announcement of God making an announcement to his heavenly court, which would be the sons of God and the angels. And There's a lot of mystery to that, but it is in sense this way. God is announcing to his heavenly court, I am going to make man in our image. Now, what's interesting is angels and these spiritual beings did not create man. And we'll see that in just a second. But let's talk for a second. Let me just jar your memory because if you haven't heard me teach on this before, what I'm probably saying sounds very wrong to you. So let's just look at a few verses in the Old Testament that support the idea that there is a heavenly court that stands before the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 22, it will be on the screen. This is the prophet Micaiah. I don't have time to give you the context today, but he's speaking to King Ahab here and King Jehoshaphat. And Micaiah said this, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Who's that? The heavenly court. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one thing said one thing, and another said another, and excuse me, and one said one thing, and another said another. Sounds like a staff meeting. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him. You shall go, you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, so what do we see here? We see God working with his heavenly court. Does this mean God needs a heavenly court to do his bidding? Of course not. God's God. He can do whatever he wants. Does God need human beings to work on the earth for him? No, of course not. But he chooses to use us. Use us. As he chooses to use his heavenly court, he chooses to use us on earth. Listen to Psalm 82, verse 1. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, notice that's lowercase g, he holds judgment. God's lowercase g is just another word that's used to refer to heavenly beings and angels of the like, things like that there in the Old Testament. That there is such thing as a heavenly court. They're all created by God. They are not gods in the sense that we understand like ancient mythology. They are angels. They are his team. That God's heavenly court that he has chosen to put there. Listen to Psalm 89 verses 5 through 8. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. There it is again. For where is this assembly of the holy ones? For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings? What do you mean? There's more than one? Well, there's a heavenly court. Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones? What do councils do? They talk about things. Um, And awesome above are all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who are as mighty as you are, who... Excuse me, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. So, here's what I want you to see. When God says to, the, to what I believe is the heavenly court there in verse 26, let us make man in our image, I want you to look down in verse 27. It says, so God created. God created. Let's do a little Hebrew grammar here. 
The word there for created, you don't have to worry about the Hebrew word, just know that it is singular and active, meaning it's one God, because there's only one God. God is doing the creating. When I've explained this to you before, and there's a lot of people who say, wait a second, you're saying that God got together with the angels and they made man? That's not what the Bible says. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God announced to his heavenly court, let us make man in our image, and then God specifically is the one, God alone, who made man in his image. We are not in the image of angels. We are in the image of God. So, moving on. Even after the fall of Adam and Eve, humanity still retains God's image. The image of God is something that was created within man by God and God alone. And it is retained even after the fall. Listen in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. The fall of man in the Garden of Eden is Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis chapter 5, 1 through 3, the text says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam is made in the image of God, and now Seth is made in the image of Adam. But now something has happened that's a little different. Adam, because of his sin, he has become a sinner. Death has entered the world, and now Adam is going to die. And his son, Seth, is going to die. And his son after him and all their daughters and family, they're going to die. Because we are in God's image, because we are created in God's image, but also God's image has now become marred in this sense. That because of sin, we now die. But here's a question. Is because man sinned in the garden, is because Adam and Eve sinned, is now the image of God no longer on mankind? Are we only in the image of Adam and no longer bear God's image? Well, no, Genesis makes it clear again. In chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, this is after the flood. Listen to what God says to Noah. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. For from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Look at this next statement. It's on the screen. Say it with me. For God made man in his own image. This is after the flood. And when God is instructing Noah about what to do if somebody kills somebody else, he says, listen, if someone murders someone, if man sheds blood, then by man, collective, it's not a blood vengeance, but collective justice, this is where we get the idea of capital punishment and governing authorities, that, that if someone sheds blood, by man's blood is, excuse me, by man should his blood be shed. Because God says, even after the flood, even long after all of that stuff since the Garden of Eden, that humanity still bears the image of God. So, we've seen where the image of God is in the text. So, what is it? You know, it's the here image of God, and that's not 
Well, the way we talk today, what's that all about? Well, the image and likeness of God speak of human status. The image and likeness of God speak of human status. What do I mean by this? Well, the image and likeness of God is less about what human is and more who a human is. The image and likeness of God is less about what human is and more who a human is. When God made man in his image, he made man a person. God is a person. He's one God in three persons, as a matter of what the Bible teaches. And God has made us beyond just an animal. We are people. We are a person. So what does this mean? Well, because we bear the divine image, we possess attributes like God. For instance, we possess intelligence, emotions, personality, will, consciousness. We possess all of these things because God is our creator. Because we bear the divine image, we possess attributes like God. However, we need to make clarification. We do not possess status because we bear attributes like God. We do not possess status because we bear attributes like God. Here's the next statement that goes with it. We possess attributes like God because of our status. I want you to go back to that list I put, just put up a second ago. Intelligence, emotions, personality, will, consciousness. Here's a question. Do dogs have intelligence? Well, some of them do, right? What about, do cats have emotions? Yes, they're capricious. Do, do animals have personality? Of course. Do they have a will? Does my dog have a will? Does my dog make choices? Well, I'm, I'm, he makes dog choices. I mean, he's not like choosing who to vote for, but I mean, or at least not yet, but you know. Um, but anyway, then there's consciousness. What about consciousness? Does God, do dogs and pets and animals have a consciousness and awareness? Well, of course, but it, it's, it's not human consciousness. It's different. Here, here's why we need to specify this. We bear attributes like God that we have a mind, we have self-awareness and all those things because we are made in God's image. But it's not our attributes that make us in God's image. It's because we're in God's image we bear those attributes. And here's what's important. Because if in order to be in God's image, you have to have intelligence, emotions, personality, will, and consciousness then a baby inside of a mother is not in the image of God. But if the image of God is not the attributes of what we bear, but is rather who we are, it is a status, then life is valuable from conception. And therefore, I believe the Bible teaches this, that we are endowed with the image of God as a status, that we are to be what makes us different is the next thing that tells us what human status is all about compared to the rest of creation, which is this. 
the status of humans as God's image is acknowledged by their gifted dominion. The status of humans as God's image is acknowledged by their gifted dominion. Look back in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that crawls on the earth. Adam and Eve, man, humanity, was given a status as God's ruler on the earth. Adam and Eve were to be the king and queen of the earth and rule all of these lower creations. The status of humans as God's image is acknowledged by their gifted dominion. You see, dominion is just another way to refer to sovereignty. Dominion is just another way to refer to sovereignty. Here's a question. Is mankind sovereign? Well, we're not sovereign as God is sovereign because God rules over all. But we're sovereign over the things that God has placed us over, which is the lower creation. Dominion is just another way of referring to sovereignty. When theologians say it this way, is that Mankind, man and woman, is God's vice regent on the earth. He is, in a sense, if God is emperor supreme, we serve as governor over earth. Now, that's a poor example because when we think of emperor supreme, we're still thinking in human terms. God is lord over all of the universe, all of the universe. I read something last week. When I was a kid, I was told that there are approximately 250 billion galaxies we live in one called the milky way and in the milky way there's billions of stars but that there are billions 250 billion estimated that changed just a few weeks ago and i just read an article on it now they said they can look deeper in space it's not 250 billion galaxies it's more likely somewhere between 6 and 20 trillion galaxies the universe is a really big place God's Lord over all of the universe. And we as human beings are his vice regent here upon the earth. We are to rule and exercise dominion over the earth. So dominion is another way to refer to sovereignty. Humanity does not exercise dominion over the creation above them. Well, who is the creation above humanity? Well, we talked about him a few minutes ago. But Psalms 8 talks about him. Psalms 8, 4 through 8. <clears throat> what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, or if you're reading the KJV, you've made him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So who is it that we rule over for such a time as now? The creation below us. We do not rule over the creation above us, that, namely the angels, who at this moment possess a higher level of authority than we do. But it is interesting, and I don't have time to unpack this, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, that in the life to come, 
In the life to come, the roles will be reversed, that we will rule over angels. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So that angels that are entertaining us unaware and they're watching over us, I do believe personally in guardian angels. I certainly believe my daughter Lucy has at least three or four. Um, but in a sense that they, in a sense, are watching over us in our infancy, so to speak, that one day when we are glorified and become like Jesus, we're going to rule over the angels. You say, explain that a little more. No way. I have no idea how to explain that. It's a mystery to me. However, we must see in Genesis, as humans, we were given a status to rule. It's not something we earned by our attributes. It's something we were gifted by birthright. It's who we are. God made us in his image. We are his ruler here on earth. Therefore, we are to rule over creation. So humanity exercises dominion over creation below them. That would be the animals. We've already talked about that. Let's go to the last principle because we're out of time. The last principle is this. Is they, being human beings, are given dominion over all life except human life. And here's where we need to park. Adam and Eve were told to rule over all of the earth. Specifically, look in verse 29. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That means have children, not kill them. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They, being human beings, are given dominion over all life except human life. Two principles here as we close. Your dominion and mine, your dominion over life ends where another's begins. Friends, you have been given dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock. You can, of course, we know from the Proverbs that a righteous man cares for the health of his animals. But you have been given dominion over all all of the earth, just like me. But you have not been given dominion over other image bearers. That's where it stops. Your dominion stops where mine starts. Mine stops where yours starts. Why? Because we are fellow imagers. And it doesn't matter if I'm more educated than you, you have more money than me, you have more political power than your neighbor. It does not matter because the image of God has nothing to do with wealth or education or attributes. The image of God is all about who your daddy is, and that's the Lord. Therefore, we are all imagers of God, and we are not to exercise dominion over human life because only God can do that. So the final statement, I want you to think about this. Your dominion over life ends next to you with your neighbor and within you with yourself. Human life belongs to God. You could say, well, listen, it's my life. I can do whatever I want to it. If I want to take my life, I can take my life. It's my choice. Well, you certainly have a choice and you can exercise dominion, 
but it's not your life. It's God's life. You say, well, listen, it's my body. I can do with my body. If I want to use my body to hurt your body, it's my choice to do with my body whatever I want. Well, you can do and make a choice, and you can even choose to hurt other people. But friend, it's not your body and your choice. All life belongs to God. You belong to God. I belong to God. If I use my body to violate your body, I am violating your status as an image bearer now hopefully you can do the math on this because this is the one thing that i think is missing with questions about abortion or euthanasia or suicide all of these questions friends the question is what is the image of god if the image of god is a bunch of attributes that is only you only possess it when you have the attributes then Frankly, a one, two, three-year-old child may not even be fully in the image of God until they're fully grown. But if the image of God is a status that you're given by birthright, that means you have it from the beginning when you were being knit together in your mother's womb. So to touch life that is not yours is to touch what belongs to God. Now, with all of that said, I recognize that talking about such things is very sensitive and hurtful because there are people, I guarantee you, in this room that have dealt with this very thing, myself included. And I do so. I want to extend as much compassion and mercy and just say, listen, the Lord loves you, loves your life. The Lord's not holding your past over you. But friends, I want us to see in the scripture that life is God's and it's sacred because it's God's and we dare not violate it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. Lord, I thank you that we bear your image. And Lord, help me grow in my understanding of what that means. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for mercy that is so plentiful and abundant because, Lord, you gave your very life for ours. Lord, I pray you would help us as we think about these things. For it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen.